Is China really the new Soviet Union? Will they end up on the ash heap of history? Stay tuned. Find out uh, what's really going on. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. On balance, there are far more good things about democracy. And of course, by nature, it is imperfect. One of the perpetual challenges of democracy is that popular opinion can be and is often intentionally misinformed. Politicians, especially those seeking the highest offices, often run their campaigns based on polling, sampling, and reflecting the public mood. When listening to this TV ad for presidential candidate Nikki Haley, it's unmistakable what polling data has told her. China's dictators want to cover the world in communist tyranny. Nikki Haley, tough as nails, smart as a whip, unafraid to speak the truth. Communist China won't just lose. Like the Soviet Union before it, communist China will end up on the ash heap of history. Nikki Haley. Yeah, China, China, China. And then, of course, got to get in there, the old Soviet Union. (laughs) (laughs) But is is building such public sentiment really in America's best interest? Well, there's the elected government, which makes decision, but there's also the quiet but profound power of America's big business interests in China. What about them? As our guest points out, U.S.-China connections became deeply embedded in the functioning and success of U.S. capitalism. Well, that's no small matter. Our guest on today's show is Richard D. Wolf, whose widely published essay is titled, U.S. Leaders Are Split on China Policy. I suspect maybe that's a good thing, and maybe, maybe it's better than marching in lockstep in a militaristic rush toward uh, a violent confrontation. Richard Wolf is professor of, of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor at the New School University in New York. His recent work has concentrated on analyzing the causes and alternative solutions to the global economic crisis. His groundbreaking book, Democracy at Work, a Cure for Capitalism inspired the creation of a nonprofit organization of the same title, Democracy at Work, dedicated to showing how and why to make democratic workplaces real. Ooh, economic democracy, what a concept. Wolf is also the author of Occupy the Economy, Challenging Capitalism, and Capitalism Hits the Fan, The Global Economic Meltdown and What to Do About It. Our guest, Richard Wolf writes regularly for The Guardian and Truthout.org and appears frequently on TV and radio to discuss his work. He's also a frequent lecturer at colleges and universities across the country. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thank you for inviting me, Bert. I'm glad to be here. Well, campaign ads are not known for their careful accuracy. Please share with us your reaction to the ad that I played. Aside from the obvious, which is boosting Haley's chances in the New Hampshire primary, what is the intended effect politically in terms of actual U.S. foreign policy? Well, basically what we're seeing here, and it's not unique to Nikki Haley, is uh, large corporate donors buying votes for candidates they want to support them. And they, uh, as you rightly pointed out, they hire 
public relations firms uh, to carry out polling, uh, focus groups and things like that to find out what it is they can arrange for their chosen candidate uh, to say that might bring them some votes. They spend the money to pay the public relations firms uh, to write this script, which Nikki Haley then articulates. And that's really the end of it. I would have to say, though, with the one, the clip you just played, that even for this sorry perversion of of democracy, because obviously you and I don't have the money to hire an expensive public relations firm to carry out the polling, to come up with the gambits and the scripts for the candidates then to read in front of the camera. That's a kind of activity that you need deep pockets to finance. And therefore, it tilts the whole playing field in the favor of those corporate interests that have the money and have every incentive to get one of their friends, I'm using the word loosely, into office, because once in office, they can do things with the law that are much more valuable than the amount of money that the corporation has to lay out to get that person into office. Well, it's what, a sorry story, but it's very common in our system. Well, one of the, the issues these days is, you know, there's there's the uh, rush toward China, 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 Soviet Union, uh, and confronting them. But there's also, I mean, U.S. Uh, capitalists, the big the big corporations do a lot of business with China. And, and I don't think... I can't imagine how they would feel about, you know, building up this uh, popular sentiment against, you know, uh, against China and towards some militaristic solutions. And it does seem that, you know, they may, the Democratic and Republican presidents may vary on domestic policies, and they do, but there's never, I don't see ever any hint of interruption or change in terms of foreign policy. What about the Biden administration? What do you know? How filled with old cold warriors is the Biden administration? Well, the Biden is full of them. It has never lost them. Uh, Biden comes from Obama and Clinton. Obama and Clinton shared this kind of uh, anti-socialist, anti-communist. Look, it's understandable. Uh, It was the mantra of the American government ever since Uh, the end of World War II, Americans, when you poll them, are even so befuddled by all of this that they don't remember their history. In World War War II, the United States was allied with the Soviet Union. If you visited a post office in the mid-40s to pick up a a book of stamps uh, as a citizen here in the United States, you would see over the clerk's uh, desk where you bought the stamps, a picture of a jovial Uncle Sam, that cartoon with the top hat, arm in arm with somebody identified as Uncle Joe. Well, that was Joseph Stalin. And the reason his image was up there, arm in arm with a big broad smile, 
uh, together with Uncle Sam, was that the United States and the Soviet Union allied to fight both Hitler and Mussolini in Europe and the Japanese in the Pacific. And, you know, it's a shame, but it shows, to give you an idea of how far it goes, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, when he was running for office, made a famous remark looking for votes just like Nikki Haley. He said proudly how his father fought in the U.S. Army in World War II against the communists from Russia, Uh. not understanding, (laughs) as so many Americans don't, what their actual history was. But here's the point I think is important, and you raise it in your question. The American business community is split. A large number of our biggest and most important uh, corporations household names in the United States, have made enormous investments in China over the last 40 years. Yes. Right after the conservative President Nixon, together with his conservative Mm. uh, Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, went to China and sat down with Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong and agreed to, quote, unquote, open China and They exchanged diplomatic relations. The Chinese set up their embassy in Washington. Uh, The United States helped them become a member of the World Trade Organization. Why? Because American corporations made a fortune moving production out of Cincinnati and Chicago and New York over to Shanghai and Tianjin and the other major industrial areas of uh, China. They could pay much lower wages than they paid Americans. They could get access to the Chinese market, which already then was on the way to become what it is now, the largest, fastest growing market in the world. And every student in in an American Master of Business Administration course, and I've taught those in American universities, every one of them is taught, if you want to be a successful uh, corporate leader, You go where the wages are low and the market is growing. And so they took the advice that they learned here in the United States about how to make a successful business career. And they moved massive amounts of production out of the United States to China. Look, General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. They have no illusion about what they need. They need peace between those two countries. They need an open access to the Chinese market. They are terrified. And I, I'm, I'm not using that word loosely, mm. that the mentality of a Nikki Haley could actually become real and not just verbiage that she uses right. to, to get some more votes. So we are in a society which doesn't tell its people the truth most of the time. But the truth here is that Nikki Haley may be looking for votes in New Hampshire or elsewhere, but and she's recycling the old Cold War sing-song in the hopes of doing it, but she is way out of step with who she'll have to rely on later Ah. to be the donors without which she would not have a prayer if she were to win the nomination. I mean, she doesn't look like that's going to happen anyway, but 
if she were, and this is true for every other candidate, including Donald Trump, Chris Christie, uh, Mr. DeSantis, or anyone else, you're going to have to make your peace with an enormously powerful and enormously rich part of the United States, which understands that the economic growth of the United States over the last 30 to 40 years was built upon a very profitable, mutual relationship with the People's Republic of China. And let me give you just one example. All right. The Chinese, because of their disciplined labor force, because of their industrialization, which over the last 30 years has been nothing short of spectacular. They went from one of the poorest countries on this planet to the number one economic challenger of the United States. Right. And they did it and they did it in 30 years, which in historical time yeah. is like the blink of an eye. Yeah. Now here's the here's the punchline. They could produce more cheaply. They could produce technology which now rivals anything that Google or Apple or anybody else can do. But they didn't have a distribution system. They didn't have a way to get all the goods that were produced in China into the hands of the consumers, particularly the rich ones in North America, Western Europe, and Japan. The solution to their problem was to cut a deal with the distributors in those areas. Therefore, the following sentence is correct. Over the last 30 years, during which China became an economic power, an obscure department store in Bentonville, Arkansas, became the Walmart that governs the world today. Ah. Walmart, Walmart made its mark by marketing Chinese-produced goods and services. This kind of interaction, this kind of interdependency is not going to be undone by a bunch of conservative politicians recycling old Cold mm. War slogans. And that's all Nikki Haley is doing. And she's, of course, not the only one. I mean, I, not I, at all. I, I get to live in New Hampshire, which is always interesting around uh, uh, presidential election time, mm -hmm. which seems to never, ever end. But yeah. there's the, the aggressive ads with, you know, more military, you know, fight China. They're all if, if you're a Republican candidate for president and you have an ad on TV, it's about the same uh, message. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Richard Wolf, who's written an article, uh, widely published essay titled U.S. Leaders Are Split on China Policy. And it's a difficult situation with them having so much money now. And I, I wanted to ask about it, this is this is not Mao's People's Republic of China. It's not like you know your father's Oldsmobile. <laughs> what is the role of the private sector in China now? I mean, how they still call themselves communist? What the heck? I mean, what is the yeah. role of the private sector? Well, you know that that's part of the absurdity and the ignorance that is woven into what Nikki Haley is saying there. When the Republican president, by the way, Nixon and Kissinger, went to China early in the 1970s, the leader was Mao Zedong. Yes. The dominant political force was the Chinese Communist Party. And the economy looked a lot 
like the Soviet unions once did. But over the intervening 30 or 40 years, China made a number of adjustments and changes. And not to say that the United States did not also make changes, but the changes in China are of the sort that ought to make any American who isn't ignorant sit up and realize that the story Nikki Haley is talking about hmm. is so woefully out of date that it becomes more a, a joke than, a, than an argument. Let me explain. China decided partly after the meetings with Nixon and Kissinger, that they were going to change the strategy from what they had been doing following the Soviet Union to doing something radically different from the Soviet Union. And here's what that was. They would make their economy a hybrid. What do I mean? Mm. They would have a huge private capitalist sector, enterprises of all sizes, small, medium, and enormous corporations owned and operated by shareholders, both Chinese and other, and they would uh, operate like any private capitalist economy in the world. But here's the difference. Side by side with that private capitalist sector, there would be a sector that was owned and operated by the government. That's an economy looking more like what the Soviet Union decided to do. You could think of it this way. The United States, Britain and Europe are mostly private economic system, mostly yes. private capitalists with a little bit of government. Russia was mostly government with a little bit of private. China is different from both of them because it decided to have, it's not quite 50-50, but it's an enormous private and an enormous government sector working side by side and coordinated by the government, which is a powerful government, but it's presiding over this hybrid system. Now, the reason it's important to understand that is we've never seen that before in the mm, world. Mm. This is a new strategy for how to mix the public with the private. And here's the reality. Whether you like China or not is really beside the point. Does China have problems and weaknesses? Of course it does. Like every other society, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. But here's a strength which, if you don't understand it, you will never make sense of what's going on. Over the last 30 years, that's a long time, the economic growth in China, that is the growth each year of what we call the GDP, the gross domestic mm -hmm. product, mm -hmm. that's just a measure of the total output of goods and services right. in one full calendar year. Right. Year in and year out, every country keeps track of that. Sure. The, the GDP of the United States over the last 30 years averages an increase of about 2% per year. Over the same 30-year period, the average annual increase of the GDP of the People's Republic of China is 6 to 9%. In other words, China has grown two to three times and it's more like three times the rate of the United States, which is why over that period of time it caught up. Let me give you one more statistic that we economists use to try to keep in your mind the sense of proportion that's needed here. 
The GDP of the United States last year was about $21 trillion. Let me give you by comparison the GDP of Russia over the over the last year. Okay. One and a half trillion. Ooh. Americans don't understand. Russia never was an economic competitor of the United States. Right. It never came close. It was much too poor and much too much behind. Things are completely different with China. China's GDP last year was, depending a little bit on how you count, between 17 and 18 trillion dollars. That's a competitor now, uh, of the United States. And I the, think the, I was going to say I think I think uh, we know it now, and it's it's making a lot of people nervous in the government and in the in the business sector. And that's right. That's why the government is split. Half of them want to stay continuing to make the money that they've been able to make right. off a of booming China. And the other ones are scared. And I understand why this is the first serious economic competitor uh. the United States has had in the last 75 years. And we better get used to it because it's not going to go away. And the only real way to stop it would be a nuclear war. That's too crazy for anyone. I hope to take seriously. Wow. It, it, I mean, the, the uh, you know, uh, chest pounding and, and looking tough, <laughs> it goes on and on and on. And meanwhile, you know, part of this, I, I wonder about how really it China is doing. Economists like Michael Pettis of the Carnegie Endowment see China's problems as more systemic. And I've noticed that part of the boom in China's growth has been the real estate sector. And whoa, that seems problematic. I wonder how that's affecting China now, the, the, the private uh, power in China and uh, having these huge buildings empty. And just uh, doing nothing there. What about the, the real estate sector? I wonder if the uh, allegedly communist government can go in there and, and make any changes on that. Well, there's two ways to approach the answer to that question. The first one is, is to remind everyone that if you had the time, which I have had to do because it's been my job as an economics professor, uh, you will know that over the last 30 or 40 years that China caught up basically to the United States, this spectacular economic development program uh, throughout that time. There would not, no month went by when I would not read in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times or The Economist or any one of the major international financial news sources, an article like Mr. Pettis in which the Chinese economy couldn't possibly be growing the way it claims that its statistics are, you know, rigged or fudged or faked or what. By now, you know, it's the old story of crying wolf. If you keep saying that kind of thing and it keeps being untrue, after a while, you may even be right, but no one's going to believe you anymore because it's been said too often. That has, that's the first problem with what you're reading about real estate. But a more important problem about the real estate is that China is a different economic system. And you have to keep that in mind. So, for example, they believe that they don't want to be overwhelmed by their own population. And let's understand... Uh -huh. In China, you have a country that isn't all that much bigger than the United States, you know, geographically, 
but has four times the population. Try to wrap your head around what it means to be a country of 1.4 billion people. We in the United States are a country of 325 million. I mean, there is no comparison. For them, one of the most central questions has to be, how in the world do we handle 1.4 billion people? The only other country on earth that comes close to China in population is India. Right. Other than that, every other country in the world is a dwarf compared to India and China. One of the things they've done is to say we are not going to wait for housing shortages to drive people to live, you know, 20 to a room or to give us a problem of homelessness. We're not going to do that. We are going to do something which a private capitalist economy can't do. Right. We're going to build the housing before we need it, not after we've needed it for a long time. We are not going uh -huh. to wait. And so what they do is they provide credits, government, which controls the banking system or a large part of it, provides low interest credit to builders to build the housing. In other words, they know and they plan on producing the housing and then moving people as they need it into the apartments, not the other way. Now, you may not like that system. You may think that mm -hmm. there are going to be problems with it. And by the way, there will be problems with yes. any system. There will be problems with that one. But to see the, the existence of many empty buildings as some sign of a mistake I mean, that's crazy that that it may be a mistake, but this is an intentional program, which, by the way, they've been doing for a long time. They've built not just housing, by the way, they've built entire cities before the people were anywhere near needing to use the transport or use the housing or use the communications facilities. Over the long run, this has turned out to be a very smart move. Mm. But, it, it, you know, did they take a chance doing it? I, absolutely. Could it have gone wrong? No question. May it be going wrong in certain parts? I would assume it probably is. Seems likely. But it's, but it's a different strategy. And an alarmist article in the newspaper about, see, there's a systemic problem misunderstands there may well be but pointing to empty housing is not pointing to a symptom of that because that's intentionally what they do and by the way um, more people go to the china to study their housing system yeah. as a model than are coming to this country and you ought to keep that in mind yeah, we do have a bit of a housing problem here. Yes. No doubt about that. And yet and it's getting and it's getting worse as oh, the statistics yeah. on homelessness. I recently had occasion to uh, to visit Los Angeles and driving by the endless tent cities of people, you know, cooking their food outside their tent. I mean, you know, for a country that calls itself the richest in the world, yeah. uh, the number of people that are homeless, the number of, uh, we are at a record in America of, of young people living with their parents, even though they've become adults, right. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's an old saying, you know, if you live in a glass house, don't throw rocks. 
because it's not a smart move, and we ought to be a little more careful. The Chinese have their problems, which Americans could help solve, and vice versa, Mm. and we'd all be better off if we went down that road. I want to remind Americans, the last 30 to 40 years, the period from the time Nixon and Kissinger went to, to China, and 2015, those were years of enormous economic prosperity in the United States. It was even greater in China. They managed it better than the U.S., but it was a time when they, the communists were in control of China all that time, and Americans got along with them. We did not have a military confrontation with mm, them, mm. and we both made a lot of money off of the interactions, trade, and investment. The idea that that couldn't be the basis of the relationships going forward requires you to be unaware that it was the basis of 30 to 40 years of very profitable, peaceful coexistence. Well, we don't like to learn from history. One thing I've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. And, you know, talk about housing here, you know, and the government's role. Uh, It's like we keep throwing money at it and, you know, law enforcement and things like that. But it's housing. It's housing. And one of the appeals, the, the great if there's any appeal of of communism and its predis, you know, and Marxism, is that to to peasants and people in poverty in general, is that it takes care of everyone's needs, basic needs. Is that still the case in China? Do people do the are, are there? I mean, with the private sector as big and as powerful as it has become in China, do they still take care of everyone's needs? Well, they do so on a scale that Americans. Uh, don't understand, don't know, and probably can't even imagine. Yes, they do, although the Chinese are not unique in that. Uh, I like to tell people uh, stories about Europe because Americans don't know. Let me give you an example. In France, before we get to China, in France, here's the law. Once you go to work, in other words, once you, you finish your high school or if you go to the university, you finish your, your, your university-level education and you enter the labor force, the law requires that you be given five weeks of paid vacation mm. by your employer. That's not a question of whether you have a strong union or not. It's not a question mm. of whether you work in manufacturing or services it is the law for everybody. My, I have family that is French. and I go over to France a lot. I, I've been speaking French since I was a kid. Uh, I understand what my French family gets out of this, which is time off, time to reconnect with your husband, your wife, your children, your family, your village, your artistic dreams, whatever. It's a crucial part of their life. Here's another one, and I'm picking France again just because I know it well, but what I'm telling you is true about Europe in general, Western Europe at least. Uh, You're taken care of medically from the time you're born in France to the day you die. If you get sick, if you get an injury, you are covered for the medical costs. End of story. It's nothing that's ever going to bankrupt you. It's nothing that's ever going to force you into an economic catastrophe. None of that. 
It's just not the system. Here's the third example. And here I'll take Germany as an example. If you go to a university in Germany, and by the way, there are many other countries in Europe that do exactly the same, but I'm familiar with it in Germany. Why? Because my American students, I was born in America, I've worked and lived here all my life. My students are now considering going to Germany. Why? Because in Germany, colleges and universities are free. There is no tuition, none of it. You are required to cover your expenses, you know, your housing, your food, and stuff like that, which you would have had to do anyway. But the cost of going to the university for all Germans, and listen to this, for anybody, any other country citizen, American, for example, can go to Germany, take advantage. I can assure you, having lectured there, that the German university is every bit as good, if not better, than the American equivalent. That same is true in France. People are taken care of in those societies, uh, and the Chinese use that as their model. They are not as rich as France and Germany. Mm. They can't do it. They can't yet. They're getting there, but they're not yet at the level uh, of the quality of the service that a France or a Germany can provide. But I might point out that historically, France and Germany are cutting those kinds of services, whereas mm. China, China is expanding them. And so those lines are going to cross in a very few years. And I won't be then telling people uh, that the Chinese haven't caught up. I will be saying that they've caught up and surpassed. So, yeah, they do take care of, of the mass of people. Uh, that's the basis for their support. That's why they have the kind of solidarity and support inside their country that Xi Jinping and the other leaders of the Chinese Communist Party uh, have the kind of support uh, that they do. Look, next week there's going to be, and maybe your listeners can pay some attention, there's going to be a meeting of one of the most important new economic organizations in the world. Yes. It's only about 20 years old. It's called the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S. stands for ah, yes. Brazil, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They're having one of their annual meetings. It's next week. Um, and this is now an association that is a, if you put together those five countries, the terms of the output of their society, of their economies, those five, is larger than the total output of the United States and its allies that are known as the G7. 2020 was the last year in which the G7 total output, U.S. and its allies, was roughly equal to the BRICS total output, China and its allies. Now, three years later, BRICS total output in, of the world, total percentage of the world's output, 32, 33%. Wow. United, the G7, U.S. and its allies, and by the way, G7 means U.S., Western Europe, Canada, and Japan. They are now down to 19. So the lines have already crossed in terms of the size of these two uh, economic associations. And make no mistake, every little country of Asia, Africa, Latin America is now very, very clearly aware that the economic wealth of the world that they appeal to, to help them develop, to help them overcome poverty and so on, 
they now have a choice. They can go to the West, to London, to Paris, to New York, or they can go East, above all, to China. And China and its allies have more money to distribute to these needy countries than the West. And no one should misunderstand what that means. We have not had that situation for a century. And the United States is in a new economic situation, difficult to face. I understand it. Mm-hmm. Hard to hard to wrap your head around, easy to deny. Yes. But it will it will not help us not to understand how the world has changed. Yes, the U.S. Uh, unquestioned hegemony over the world that ain't there anymore. You know, it's like right. London used to be it, the city, but then right. it, and and it's it's changing. It is changing, and people don't want to see it. It's uncomfortable. Right. If, it you, is. if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're speaking with economist Richard Wolf about his uh, article: U.S. leaders are split on China policy, and we're talking about the power. Power of China as we move forward. We, 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 you know, there are those people who want to <clears throat> make America great again, uh huh, you know, who just deny it. But there's something called Africa. It's very large. There's a lot of growth potential there and a lot of growth that's happening there. And I'm not sure if people listening are familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative. I wonder if it's a bid for global influence. Is China replacing the old Western European powers and trying to and uh, having a scramble for Africa, taking over Africa? Your thoughts? Yes, well, that's a lively literature that you've pointed to with your comment, and you're quite right. Uh, That literature looks at the fact that country after country in Africa is turning as it makes sense for them to do. They can't get the kinds of investments from Western Europe and North America that they once did. Mm. They can't get the kinds of loans and grants that are advantageous that they once did. And even when they can get them, the Chinese and their allies offer them better terms, more money, lower interest rate, a longer period of years to pay back, things like that. And every little country is learning, uh, to be cynical for a moment, to play these two against each other, Hmm. to play the U.S. and its allies on the one hand against China and its allies on the other. And since China and its allies are now a larger economic unit than the United States and its empire, uh, its allies, uh, the, the, the deals are being made more and more with China. And no question about it. You can see it. If, if the deals aren't made, you know, in, in the formal economic terms, they're made in military terms. Three weeks ago, another little country, Niger in, mm-hmm. in Western Africa, I say little country, they're not little. Right. And Niger has 25 million people. That, mm. That's a sizable country, larger than many, many, many other countries. Niger joins uh, uh, Burkina Faso and, and others that are breaking away from the West. They're breaking away from alliances with the United States, with France, that's the case in Niger, uh, and so on, because they are able to go somewhere else. When you can't sell your output uh, to Americans, because they figure if we shut our country to your exports, you'll fall apart and you'll do what we say. 
oh no, there's now an option. What you used to sell to America or France or Europe, you can now say, well, I'll sell, sell it to China, I'll sell it to India, I'll sell it to Brazil, etc. All of that is happening. Look, let me give you a dramatic example uh, of this, of what's going on in Africa, even though this example is in another part of the world, but it's one that people are paying attention to. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the mother of all sanctions was the response of the United States and Europe. They stopped buying uh, Russian oil and gas to bring Russia to its knees. That's a quote. They stopped, they seized uh, $300 billion worth of Russian uh, assets held in the Western banks and so on. Uh, They blocked Russia from using uh, the SWIFT international payment system and so on. And they thought that that would bring Russia to its knees. Mm -hmm. Russia smiled. All Russia did was shift and sell oil and gas to India and to China and to Brazil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Russia didn't fall to its knees. And it hasn't in the year and a half that that war has been going on. It was a misunderstanding of how the world economy has changed, meaning that you can't do to Russia what you might have been able to do 30 or 40 years ago. And this kind of mistake is being replicated all over Africa. If you're going to want to be a player in that part of the world, which the United States and its old colonial allies, France, Belgium, and so on, you're going to have to adjust to the new world. They're not doing it. And correspondingly, Mm. they're losing out. And then you get the sore loser argument. Oh, gee, the Chinese, be careful, you African countries, because the Chinese are about to do to you what the last 300 years Mm. enabled us to do to you. That's a very desperate argument to make. The Africans are smiling and saying in reaction, well, we know what you did. Yes. Now we're going to try the Chinese. If you're right, we'll have them do to us what you have already always done. We won't be any worse off, but there's a chance we might get a better deal. And that's what we're going to do. And the United States and the Western countries really have no answer to that because they haven't dramatically altered at all the way they treat these smaller countries not only in Africa, but in Asia and Latin America as well. Uh, I know. We, again, we don't seem to learn from history. And of course, the the, uh, the former guy referred to uh, states in uh, Africa as blank hole countries, as you know. Exactly. So, I mean, what just, the hell does that tell him? Sorry. Yes. And he and not only said that, but he made sure that nobody missed the message <laughs> by saying, why don't we have more immigrants from Norway? Uh-huh. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It, you have a legacy, not only of colonialism, but of the racism yeah. and the anti-democratic governance systems that colonial regimes uh, represented. It's, of course, relatively easy for the Chinese and their allies to come in and say, you know what that part of the world offers uh. you because you've lived under it. We are something new and different. Will they be? I don't know. Well, uh, I, I was it's gonna too add, soon, really, to tell. 
And and you talk about racism. I mean, the the ads that are appearing, you know, against China. Uh, let's face it. There's this knee jerk racism that is part of these ads against people. Uh, of Chinese descent. I mean, right. and and I can't help but think that the people in Africa are going to get that, that, uh, you know, that that's part of our uh, legacy as well. And just switching a little bit, you assert that, quote, forcing capitalists to leave China will help the, U the U.S. minimally and hurt the Chinese minimally as well. So again, forcing capitalists to leave China will help the U.S. minimally and hurt the Chinese minimally as well. I wonder if you could explain what you mean there. Sure. Uh, one of the efforts being made by the Nikki Haley's of our world is to try to hurt China by putting pressure on, Chinese, on American companies busy in China, either running production facilities there or investing there um, and telling them, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's our enemy. You shouldn't be there uh, paying taxes to the Chinese government, uh, hiring their people and all the rest. And then the silliness of it, the ignorance that lies behind this kind of knee-jerk behavior is not understanding what the real economic situation is. Number one. There's something called the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in China. It has about 900 members that are American U.S. companies active in China who formed this Chamber of Commerce uh, to, to, to deal with them and to have a good relationship with their host country, China. Now, they don't want to leave China. They've made that crystal clear. And the vast majority of them are not leaving. They have not left, not five years ago, not three years ago, and not last year. They want to stay, and they're making that crystal clear. About half of them, in a recent poll, said they are worried about the direction of U.S.-China relations, which should surprise no one. Mm -hmm. But being worried is a very different thing from spending a fortune of money to, because it's always very expensive, to move an existing investment that's been there often for, for many, many years somewhere else. Number two, when, and there have been a few, when a few American companies do move, here's what Nikki Haley doesn't understand, or if she does, then she's not being truthful. They don't move back to the United States. Where they move to is Vietnam, or Indonesia, or Malaysia. Why? Because they can still get wages there much lower than what they would have to pay if they came home. And they still want to be near the Chinese market uh -huh. because that's, again, the biggest, fastest growing market in the world. And they don't want to lose touch with it. And being close by geographically, et cetera, et cetera, is their way to go. So the notion that you're going to hurt China by doing this is already flawed because you're not really getting many companies doing it. Mm. And it isn't going to help the United States much because they're not coming back here. Now, the third point, most of the companies, the few who left China and resettled in places like Vietnam or Malaysia or Indonesia, these are companies that still, and you have to laugh here, still source their inputs. 
That is, they buy much of the stuff they need to produce from China. Mm. So that, in fact, China is not losing that business in the way Nikki Haley uh, type people glibly imply, because the Chinese continue to provide the inputs to these same companies that they provided input to when they were located inside China, they continue to do the same thing when they've moved to another part of Asia. Mm. In other in other words, these are long, deeply developed supply chains running from China through other parts of the world to the United States or to Western Europe. Here's the last thing. If ever the Nikki Haley kind of nonsense were to become policy, if the neocons working in the Biden administration were to do the kinds of things that the Trump administration also boasted it would do, a trade war with China, a tariff war with China, all that kind of blabber, if that actually ever became true, it would deal a terrible blow to the American economy. Why? Because whatever Americans stop doing business with China, you can be very sure Japanese businesses, uh. French businesses, Brazilian businesses, British businesses. That's why Nixon and Kissinger went to China in the 70s, <laughs> because already then they were getting complaints from American companies saying, we can't compete with a company that has access to the Chinese economy because of its 100 you know 1.4 billion people we cannot be excluded from that market because if we are our competitors will take that market for themselves putting us at a terribly dangerous right. disadvantage and american companies will be screaming bloody yeah. murder in washington dc if ever the, the China bashing goes beyond verbal exercises right. in stale old Cold War mantra rather and becomes something real, then you're going to see the split in America's leadership become very loud and very deafening. And my guess is neither Republicans nor Democratic Party leaders have the stomach or the strength to withstand that. And looking tough, you know, I mean, we get all these images of, of uh, China having a strong military, of their planes buzzing our planes, uh, they're making aggressive moves toward China, and there's also the whole uh, question about the Uyghurs in Western uh, right. China. Uh, wh what about that? Is China not a military threat to Taiwan, and wh what, what can we do about, about that? Okay. Okay, again, you know, and I hate to be the bearer of the news. It's difficult for people to understand. I shouldn't be bearing what I'm about to tell you anyway, because it should be common knowledge. Uh, if we had a free press that did its job, it would be. But since we don't, let me go over uh, this situation. The Chinese have a small navy, and it's located in China. The United States has a very large navy, yes. a large part of which is located right on the, on the coast of China. Who is threatening whom? This is sort of silly kind of stuff, this notion that they threaten us. Let me do it another way. There's a, the, the 
Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, one of the elite Ivy oh, yeah. League schools, has a very important research center that keeps track of defense spending around the world, oh, yes. military spending, and so on. So they provide a table which I use and, and economists around the world regularly use and have used for years. And here's what that table shows. That if you add up the United States expenditure on defense, which now is in the neighborhood of 800 to 900 billion dollars, in other words, just this side of a trillion dollars, and you compare that to what the next nine largest countries' defense spending is, here's, and by the way, that includes Russia, China, but also Britain, France, and so forth. The United States spends more on military than the next nine countries combined. In other words, not only more than Russia and China, right. but more than both of them, plus the other six countries or seven countries yeah. that are allies of the United States. In, in other words, there, the notion of who threatens whom militarily right. is preposterous. It's very clear that Russia and China feel threatened by the United States and its allies because of the grotesque imbalance of the amount of money spent, the size of the army, the, the, the level of the armaments, and, and all the rest of it. I shouldn't have to explain that. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I really shouldn't, but... It is um, it, it is a situation that 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 defies confidence. All right, now the last point that, that I have time for too. Sure. Um, <laughs> the last point about the Uyghurs. Here, here's a population ten to twelve million by by the count that the United Nations gives of Muslims in a in a non-Muslim country, and they have been uh, oppressed. They have been abusively treated. They say so. I have no basis. To, to, to deny or disagree. I have no interest in disagreeing with that. I'm assuming that it's more or less true. And that's something that Chinese have to deal with. That's something that, that's a bad thing, a negative thing, something that deserves correction, criticism, and so on. It's just the proportion. A country of 1.4 billion has a minority of 10 or 12 million. That's an infinitesimal percentage less than uh, 1% of the of their of the population and and it's coming from a country where if the chinese really wish to do it they could talk about what it is that the country accusing them does to its african american minority to its hispanic minority what it has been doing over the years what you know the fact that our prisons are overwhelmingly yeah. popular by African American and Hispanic yeah. people that we have the largest prison population uh, per capita in the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It becomes a very strange kind of focus. And then let me maybe put it more starkly: if you travel, as I have done, in the Muslim part of the world, they will very quickly take sides. They will support the Uyghur folks as fellow. Muslims. Mm -hmm. But the argument about China, they find preposterous. The United States has waged war in Iraq, 
in Afghanistan, uh, against the Iranians. Those are all Muslim people. Good point. It has killed huge numbers of children and everybody yes. else in the course of these wars. What is it talking about lambasting China for what it does to Muslim you know, people? You, you know, you can't live in that kind of a glass house heaving rocks <laughs> at China and then misunderstanding that in the Muslim part of the world, this looks like the grossest hypocrisy they can imagine. Once again, we here in the United States don't get the full picture. There's a lot of militaristic uh, uh, chest pounding and looking tough, and that seems to dominate. The media seems to like that as well as, you know, it's simple. Uh, and what we're talking about here is not so simple. It's really not. Well, if people are interested in, in reading more of your stuff, there must be some way to connect people on the Internet with this uh, democracy at work. Is there some website or something you can point to? Yes, there are two, and I'd be very glad to mention them and invite everyone who might be interested in this uh, kind of an analytics uh, to go there. The first one is called Democracy at Work, all one word, democracyatwork.info, I-N-F-O. Mm -hmm. And the second, the second one is R.D. Wolf, that's uh -huh. my name, uh -huh. W-O-L, and then two Fs as in Frank, rdwolf.com. Either of those will get you, uh, they'll get you to one another, but they'll also get you to a raft of material I think you'll find interesting. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And again, it's complex. It's not so simple. And, you know, the media and the politicians sure prefer simple. But uh, thank you for explaining that uh, quite a bit. Thank you. And my pleasure, Bert, and thank you for having the courage to make programs like this that do something to offset the, the problems of, of a mass media in the country that, that is not doing the job that people need. Thank you. I appreciate that. Take care. You too. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.